So this is Teresa Treat, Associate Editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today's guest is Dave Barlow, who is Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Psychiatry at Boston University. Dave is also the founder of the Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Dr. Barlow authored a recently published article in Current Directions in Psychological Science that is titled Neuroticism and Disorders of Emotion, A New Synthesis. Dave, I'm a longtime admirer of your work, and I'm absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you about your highly influential contributions to psychological science today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Teresa. Always a pleasure. Could you get us started by providing an overview of what you mean by emotional disorders and perhaps provide an example? Sure. Um, <clears throat> our conceptions of emotional disorders have come a long way, including using the term emotional disorders, which we only started actually using formally uh, in the, over the last five years or so. Um, so basically our thinking about an emotional disorder is, uh, our conceptions of, of a disorder would be a aversive reactivity, reacting, uh, finding the experience of intense emotions themselves and the associated uh, cues that may trigger the emotions um, to, be, to be very aversive and something to be suppressed or avoided. We find that seems to be a common theme running through many different classes of disorders, such as the anxiety disorders, the depressive disorders, uh, and other disorders on the neurotic spectrum, such as uh, somatic symptom disorders, dissociative disorders, um, eating disorders, et cetera. But it seems to be that kind of central component, an aversive reactivity to intense emotional experiences uh, accompanied by attempts to avoid or suppress understandably, those emotional experiences that are uh, so aversive. Yes. And could you perhaps give us a brief example of how someone might present with an emotional disorder? I certainly can. Going back to um, the 1980s, uh, I can say the, this line of thinking began with our work on panic disorder and expanded outward from there. But for panic disorder, is kind of the prototypical typical example of this because it is characterized by, in the very definition of the disorder, a very strong, intense emotion of fear, which is uh, occurring at an inappropriate time because by definition, there's nothing to be afraid of. Therefore, this yes. fear reaction is called a panic attack. And it's very mystifying to people who experience it. Um, and as a result, people focus on this panic attack. Certain people who have a vulnerability focus on this panic attack, find it extraordinarily aversive, develop attributions and appraisals such as I must mean I'm dying, or at the very least I'm going crazy and they're going to come and put a straitjacket on me and take me away because there's no other reason I could feel this way. There's no explanation. Their belly is very negative. They develop these very negative uh, reactions and, and uh, attributions. And they therefore, quite understandably, make every attempt to avoid and suppress that reaction. Uh, in so doing, 
as we well know from basic uh, work on uh, attempts to uh, paradoxically suppress uh, aversive uh, salient events, um, this backfires. And the emotions, if anything, become more intense, more frequently experienced, more generalizable. And uh, so that emotion dysregulation, so it's fundamentally an emotion dysregulation, but that's kind of the end result of it. You know, yes. it begins with this process of finding emotional experiences to be aversive to begin with. That's very helpful. Thank you. So neuroticism, um, a fundamental temperamental characteristic, plays a central role in your conceptualization of emotional disorders. What do you mean by neuroticism and how do you think it contributes to the development and maintenance of emotional disorders? And that, of course, is a very central question. <clears throat> and to do that, having just described what we call a functional relationship uh, involving some emotional dysregulation and panic disorder, where there's the experience of an intense fear reaction and that functions to trigger uh, suppression and avoidance. Uh, we can say that there are many other disorders characterized by this. To take just one example, obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay. Um, so there, the trigger would be uh, a uh, unwanted kind of... Uh, ego dystonic, as we call it, uh, thought something bizarre often or something intolerable, like I want to hurt my children. I'm going to hurt my children. I have that kind of an impulse. And once again, that evokes some very strong negative emotions in certain people. They attempt to uh, suppress that emotion and the thought itself. And before long, the thought, of course, is uh, ever present and focused uh, in their head. So, but the interesting fact about both panic disorder and OCD and a host of other disorders is that it's not the thought itself that is problematic in the disorder. It is, well, it is in the disorder, but it's not the thought itself that is strongly implicated in the etiology of disorder. Just like it's not the panic attack itself that's strongly implicated in the etiology of panic disorder. Many people, have what we call non-clinical panic attacks. In fact, 20, 30% of the population, depending on, based on some studies, will occasionally under stress have a non-clinical panic attack. But they'll wonder about it, say, gee, what was that? And then attribute it to something relatively um, benign, such as you know, that uh, Chinese food I had last night didn't, didn't really go down well and uh, be a little careful next time and go on with their lives. But the people who develop panic disorder, you know, have this vulnerability to, to experience this emotion, first of all, more frequently, and secondly, to react very aversively to it. Same with OCD. It's the most, it's a very common, up to 70, 80% of people when under stress, as we've known for decades, will occasionally have bizarre, uh, ego dystonic kinds of thoughts, which bear no relationship to current circumstances. Uh, thoughts of uh, doing something bizarre, of blurting out something, uh, you know, that would be socially unacceptable or of, uh, and, and for most people it goes in one ear and out the other. 
they pay very little attention to it. So it's only a small subset of individuals who react very badly to it. I've mentioned those two examples because what do those people have in common? We find they both have the trait of neuroticism. And this trait <clears throat> with its vulnerability or proclivity to experience a lot of intense uh, emotions, uh, particularly negative emotions, accompanied by a sense that challenging and stressful events in their life and the accompanying emotional reaction are out of their control, that's what defines neuroticism. The tendency to experience intense emotions in very volatile and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, frequent kind of way, accompanied by this sense that events are reeling out of control or unpredictable, mm -hmm. uncontrollable in my life, including the experience of the emotions themselves. So when you back down to that consensus definition of neuroticism, yes, evolved over the decades, you see, that runs through all the emotional disorders. It's not so important what triggers the intense emotion, even though that's how we define in DSMR disorders, OCD, panic disorder, insomnia disorder, eating disorders. It's not so important what triggers it. It's important how you react to it. Yes. So you're already touching on this some, Dave. How does your perspective on mental disorders differ from more traditional ones, such as might be represented in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or the DSM? Right, and that's where the evolution in thinking has, has occurred. And that's what's fun about research courses. Yes. You know, your new data comes in, your ideas advance, and you begin to look at things a little differently. Not that anything's really fundamentally changed, but you have a different perspective on it. And um, so in this case, you know, DSM served a very important function, not to dwell too much on that, but DSM bashing is very popular these days. And everybody does it. But in fact, it, it provided a very important advance for mm -hmm. us, particularly psychologists, I might say. Uh, in that it allowed us to have working operational definitions of psychopathology sliced thinly enough that we could get our hands around it and begin to, uh, as we did, delve into the nature of these disorders and tailor some specific psychological treatments that would be effective. And in the 80s, we began working on panic disorder and that sort of evolved from these DSM definitions. So they were um you know very conducive to to uh uh research programs and to moving along then then you know it seemed to us that wait a minute there's some common threads really running through these things that might be more important than uh, uh the kind of static dsm definitions and again to make a long story short and, and a lot of other evolving research supported the notion that, well, you know, most of these, most of the people coming in for treatment don't have just one disorder. They're comorbid with a number of these, what we're now calling emotional disorders. In fact, very unusual to get somebody coming in with only one disorder. And yes. uh, um, furthermore, when you successfully treat one, you get positive spread uh -huh. of effects, you know, into other ones. So, so a lot of data that then developed in the 90s and 
turn of the century, um, supported the idea that maybe there was something more fundamental, some higher order uh, process uh, that these individuals shared. And we hit upon, um, again, going back to standing on the shoulders of all the giants from the yes. middle of the last century, Isaac and uh, many, many people working on temperament. You know, we hit upon the notion of neuroticism and that what was important as we conceptualized emotional disorders is the functional relationship. Mm -hmm. That is that it's not just that they experience intense emotions. A lot of people do. It's not just that they react, uh, you know, with certain triggers. A lot of people do. It's that they have this relationship where it serves a function. That is, there is this intense emotion. They deal with it you know, in a functional way by attempting to suppress it and avoid it in any way possible, mm -hmm. experiential avoidance. Mm -hmm. And uh, it results in a psychopathological process. So you don't really see the DSM and even some of the recent, you know, quantitative models of psychopathology, which have a lot to commend them, mm -hmm. you know, such as the high top mm -hmm. uh, model, I will say. Being of a certain age, I can say anything I want and <laughs> without uh, with impunity. But for my good friends who have worked on that kind of uh, approach, it's also a relatively static approach, I must say. And there's been some good critiques of it lately. Um, and so they kind of look at clusters of symptoms as they stand in a certain moment in time, mm -hmm. whereas the approach we take, for better or worse, takes a more uh, functional relationship over time. Mm -hmm. In other words, how are these people handling a certain set of stimulant characteristics? And, uh, <clears throat> and in terms of an invention, can we actually target that functional relationship as opposed to yes. a certain uh, static set of you know, symptoms that happen to correlate? Yeah, and that's where we're going next. So you and your colleagues have developed a highly influential um, treatment approach based upon this unique conceptualization of emotional disorders. Could you tell us some about that treatment approach? I'd be very happy to. Uh, once again, <clears throat> that this treatment approach that we call the Unified Protocol for um, Transdiagnostic uh, Emotional Disorders something like that, um, <clears throat> evolved over time. It evolved out of our treatment for panic disorder mm -hmm. because there we noticed once again that what we had to do was treat, focus on the reactivity these patients had to these intense panic attacks, these intense emotions. And ways to do that involves some traditional CBT sort of approaches as they had evolved in those years, such as a Beckian kind of changing attributions and appraisals, you know, yes. about these mm -hmm. events, uh, increasing cognitive flexibility, in other mm -hmm. words, you know, beginning to examine uh, other possible attributions other than the worst kind of uh, catastrophe people could think of. Um, it did involve, uh, some calming techniques, but not to reinforce their avoidance of the emotions, simply to, you know, help them 
to focus more on the emotions themselves they were avoiding. So in other words, to be mindfully aware of the emotional experience, which was a prelude to sort of the central part of the treatment. And that was what we call emotion exposure. Mm -hmm. Help these people begin to experience these emotions in a way that following kind of traditional uh, extinction principles, they could relearn uh, some uh, different kinds of responses and that the worst thing uh, did not always happen and that that learning would overlay, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the kind of original uh, emotional learning. <clears throat> um, so in developing, and an important part of that was not just dealing with one what one thinks about, you know, mm-hmm. the cognitive reactivity to the emotion, but also how one reacts to the very uh, somatic and physiological Mm -hmm. reactions that accompany any intense emotion. Because what we found in panic disorder in particular, where that's very salient, is that people would be avoiding some of these somatic cues. Like people would come in and say, we'd say, uh, well, how much caffeine do you drink? Because that was an important screening question for anybody with panic attacks because caffeine alone at very high levels can cause uh, panic attacks. But they would all say, oh, I gave up coffee. You know, 70% of them would say, Mm -hmm. oh, I gave up coffee years ago because I don't like the way it makes me feel, Mm -hmm. you know? And and they they, they were very careful about climbing stairs too fast because, oh, it would make their heart really feel real strange. So we found out they had developed an exquisite sensitivity Mm -hmm. of aversive sensitivity to and avoidance of all of the kind of uh, somatic cues that happen to comprise an intense emotional reaction and that we had to focus on those in treatment in a procedure we called interoceptive exposure mm-hmm. and that would simply mean recreating these cues respiratory uh, <clears throat> audio vestibular yes. and the like um, and uh, cardiac, you know, heart beating fast, uh-huh. you know, uh, recreating those first in the office and through exposure, mm-hmm. having them actually do exercises that provoke these uh, symptoms through exposure, again, um, presumably facilitate some uh, extinction. So that then we discovered that kind of aversive reactivity to the somatic sensations of emotion was not limited to panic attacks where yeah. it was easy to see. It's fascinating. It spread across the whole neurotic spectrum. Somebody with OCD might have exactly the same thing. Hmm. They might have, you know, uh, increasing accelerated heart rate and that might trigger s- some of their uh, nasty thoughts, which in turn brings on the whole uh, intense uh, aversive reaction. So the unified protocol then basically consisted of putting them in touch with their emotions mm-hmm. so they could experience them fully through mindful emotional awareness. Not mindfulness just for the sake of being mindful, mm-hmm. just to make them aware of their emotions, change the way they're thinking about it, and engage in emotion exposures, mm-hmm. which and part of that, of course, is preventing the varieties of ways these people had developed to avoid their emotions, not just behavioral, but cognitive, magical safety signals, and Mm -hmm. uh, 
the variety of avoiding procedures they would use. So that's what the unified protocol is, is basically a couple of core uh, pro uh, modules, if you like, Yes. that we just use for everybody who comes through the doors with an emotional disorder, and of course, adapting it to their specific context. Sure, sure. So you've conducted several important studies that have established the effectiveness of this trans-diagnostic treatment approach. Um, might you tell us just a little bit about one you found to be particularly compelling? I have a favorite, but I'm wondering what yours is. <laughs> well, our, our most prominent clinical trial, which was, you know, like all clinical trials, a long time in the making, asked the question that more directly on the practical implications of developing a treatment mm -hmm. like this. And that is, can you take this one treatment and apply it across diagnostic categories? And would it be just as good as the very specific evidence, you know, strongly evidence-based treatments that currently exist for those categories? Um, would, so that, that's called an equivalence trial, basically. You know, is it, is it at least as good Yes, you know, as the existing well-established treatments. And so we compared the unified protocol to some of our own treatments, our treatment for panic disorder, which has been the most successful treatment we had developed uh, up until this time, but also uh, successful treatments developed at our center for generalized anxiety disorder and for social anxiety when Rick Heinberg was at our center, mm -hmm. his treatment. And also OCD at the phones treatment for OCD. So we took hundreds of patients, basically. Some of them got the unified protocol with a minimum number of people with each of those diagnoses got the unified protocol. Others got the diagnostic uh, diagnosis specific treatment. And basically we look overall, is the UP just about as good? And then when you look at individual disorders, is it just about as good? And how does it handle comorbidity? Yes. Most of these patients come in. And what we found is, uh, as you know, uh, Teresa, was that yes, the answer was basically yes. This treatment setting, setting some fairly rigorous standards for what equivalence meant mm -hmm. <clears throat> that this treatment proved to be uh, just as effective as the individual evidence-based treatments mm -hmm. with some hints that in certain aspects, in certain uh, ways, it was, it might be more effective. For example, there was less attrition uh -huh. in the unified protocol. I'm not entirely sure why. Uh -huh. It could be because we have a session on motivational interviewing, yep. which the diagnosis specific treatments do not have as an inherently in their treatment. So we might have had a little sort of advantage in that regard, but there were some hints along those lines. Okay. Okay. That's my favorite too, by the way. <laughs> so one of the things that's most exciting to me about your work is the variety of ways in which it potentially helps to address what we <laughs> colloquially refer to as the science practice gap. Um, in other words, the unavailability of numerous evidence-based assessment or treatment approaches to many people who struggle with mental illness. Could you talk about just one or two ways that you see your work helping to address this pressing problem? Well, I'm really glad you asked that because that's kind of at the heart of uh, our mission from the beginning. You know, our treatments 
anything we do is not going to be uh, of much value unless it's useful to our, all of our colleagues laboring on the front lines, yeah. you know, day in and day out treating people suffering from these uh, disorders. Otherwise, we're just talking to ourselves and, uh, you know, my colleagues uh, doing this kind of research. But obviously, the goal we all have is to make, uh, is to develop programs that are going to be useful to frontline clinicians. And so we're very pleased to say that this one is going very well along those lines. Um, <clears throat> we have programs, uh, much as, you know, some of our colleagues do for the single disorder protocols. You know, we have programs available for that focus on training a trainer in a certain agency who then takes charge of making sure these are disseminated, the, the treatment is uh, disseminated to other clinicians. And um, by and large, there's a great deal of activity ongoing really as we speak in disseminating this intervention, this particular intervention, not only to uh, clinics and, and organizations uh, around the states, but also internationally. So yeah. Today we're dealing with uh, some dissemination uh, in, in Hong Kong. There's a lot going on in Spain, Italy, uh, and Germany, and uh, China. So um, in Korea. So so it seems to be something that people our colleagues who are on the front lines, who are clinicians. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's a set of principles they can learn. Mm -hmm. They seem to be able to, you know, pick it up and administer it with integrity, you know, mm -hmm. with, uh, uh, adherence and competence, with integrity as we call it. And they particularly are attracted to the notion that they don't have to worry about all of the co existing comorbidity they can just go with the particular, with the, the, the fundamental kind of functional relationship inherent in anyone with a neurotic temperament and, uh, who then goes on to develop a disorder. Of course, not all do, but uh, some do. And uh, so they do find that uh, based on reports coming back to us, a significant advantage in terms of feasibility and, and uh, usability and, and acceptance. Well, that's all the time we have for today, Dave. Um, many thanks for sharing your outstanding and um, highly innovative contributions to clinical science. You've made an enormous difference um, in the field and in the lives of many people. So thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Teresa. My pleasure.